Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 108 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. This episode features a great interview with two commercially published authors, John Wallace and Antonia Honeywell. I met John and Antonia at this year's Galance Fest event, and we had a great conversation for the podcast covering issues like strategies for approaching an agent, what makes you a writer, and decoding the responses you get when you pitch work. Now, in my own news, to start with, some of you will know that I've been working on a fiction project which I've picked up and put down far too many times and which has been knocking around for some ridiculous period of time, like nine years. I am at last getting on with the first draft of that again and feeling the pain I so gleefully talk about in the handbook when one gets to that tricky middle section of the first draft of a novel. I'm sure it will work out okay. If you're listening to this podcast as it's launched, you might still have time to get a copy of the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook in time for Christmas or mention it to someone who is looking for present ideas for you. Certainly, if you haven't got a copy, there's no excuse for anyone to complain that they can't think of something to get you. Point them in the direction of Amazon, tell them to look up the Creative Writer's Toolbelt Handbook and the rest is easy. And if you're listening to this as we come to the end of 2017 or indeed any other year, maybe the handbook will be the resource you need to gear up for those writing projects that you have in mind for the new year to come. So back to this episode and I'm delighted to present for you a spirited and warm conversation with the authors John Wallace and Antonia Honeywell. John is the author of Barricade, Steeple and Rig, which are the Kentsterbeck trilogy published by Galance. He is also science fiction columnist for the Engineer magazine. Barricade, the first novel in that trilogy, was called a scintillating debut by the Financial Times, hugely recommended by Forbidden Planet and a bona fide barnstormer by Tor.com. John has been a barman, postman, till jockey, actor, helpliner, pollster and charity comms bloke. His hobbies include walking pooches and listening to his wife sing her way around the house. And he has recently become the proud father of a baby daughter. Antonia has worked at the Natural History Museum in London and is a qualified teacher. She's a wife and mother of four children and her novel The Ship was chosen as one of the Independent's best young adult fiction books of 2015. It featured in the March 2015 issue of Elle magazine and was selected as Prima Magazine's book group choice for February 2015. Antonia was selected as one of Amazon's rising stars of 2015 and one reviewer described the ship as engrossing as it is chilling. This first potent novel fuses an apocalyptic coming-of-age story with a fierce interrogation of what it means to be truly alive. So Antonia and John, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Thank you you very much. So I want to start a question to both of you. Could each of you tell us a little bit about the films, TV, books, and other other media that were a particular influence on you uh, when you were a child and you were growing up. Antonia, you I, can go first. <laughs> sorry, I, I just was, wasn't I? Sorry, mm. John. Um, <laughs> I, I was I was absolutely prolific, and um, the, the same way that we worry about our children playing too many computer games these days. Um, <laughs> I think my parents used to worry because I never ever ever had my head out of a book, and uh, and I read very promiscuously and avidly. <laughs> for yeah, you know, ever since I could read at all. Yeah. I remember, obviously I remember loads of things I read, but I discovered do you remember John Christopher and the Tripods trilogy? My primary school teacher gave mm. me those when oh gosh, I can only have been eight or nine. And I I absolutely ate them up. Um it was the first time I'd ever read anything that wasn't set in a 
concrete environment like you know it's a boarding school with all the inner blightons or <laughs> and you know thing, thing children's levels are often set in a very specific environment but the the tripods is set in a future where aliens have taken over and are ruling the humans by means of a cap they they you when you come of age you get a a cap put on your head that 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 right. is through which the aliens control you and cool. um it tells the story of this young boy called will who is just about to be capped and just before he's capped he meets this vagrant you know if your capping goes wrong you go a bit loopy and you're called a vagrant and you just wander around and it's like a work of charity to feed you and house you <laughs> and um, and he meets this vagrant who turns out to be an uncapped adult he's the first uncapped adult this child has ever come across and the story involves uh, the, the the uncapped the community of the uncapped getting together and working out how to overthrow these alien overlords yeah. and it's absolutely brilliant i've been rereading them recently with my with my own children yeah and they stand up they've stood up they have stood up so well um to the test of time because those themes are universal yeah and i'm I'm, I'm just looking at yeah, that series on, and it looks it looks like it's it's it looks like it's about 50 years old that series yeah so. it is it was it was old when i read it right but it it, it had something and from there I, I went out actively seeking these alternative universes that are actually our own yes they're actually where we are now yeah. but yeah. reflected in a in a kind of pseudo futuristic setting that's, that's yeah. exploring where we are now and and it had that kind of dirty grimy reality that the first star wars films had do you remember how all the droids are kind of um mm. worn and yeah. battered it's not all <laughs> shiny shiny white smooth surfaces it's, it's like real this is what the future might yeah. really look like. Yeah. Um, and I find that. And then, of course, as I got older, I, I kept that. And I found you know, things like the, the Handmaid's Tale in 1984, which I read in 1984 when I was 30, when I was 13 and yeah. felt like it had been written for me. I think it's one of those novels you need to read as a teenager, because obviously yes. when you're a teenager, the whole world is stacked against you. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, book, books like that. Films I came to much, much later. Yes, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a blockbuster girl, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't really explored the outer realms Good for of you. more obscure Good science for fiction. But yeah, give me a Total Recall or a Blade Runner any day of the week. <laughs> the um, original, not the new one. Yeah, what, 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 what would you say, John, were, were, were the kind of formative influences on you then? Well, I really agree with Antonia about Orwell. I actually started reading it before they gave gave I think they gave us Animal Farm at school to read. But I started to read that before that because my dad was was a massive massive Orwell fan. Absolutely everything. And I used to go up to his flat, and he had these beautiful orange paper uh, penguins of all the Orwell. But the good thing then was you didn't have like um, you know nowadays you can you can go online and see like the the publication history and you go watch yes. it start here finish there yeah so what i did with george orwell was skip all over the place so I, st I think the first one i read was down and out in paris and london which i absolutely loved and i think then i read one of the strange and more random ones like coming up for rare burmese mm -hmm. days things yeah. like that and then read 1984 um and then my dad was thrilled that i was getting into it so he bought me all of his essays like the line in the unicorn which has that amazing i think it's the line in the unicorn has that amazing opening line which is written during the blitz where he mm -hmm. says, as I write, highly civilised people are flying above me trying to kill me. Um, it, like, but lots of great stuff like that. And so I, I really, really loved Orwell. Um, yeah. But there was, in terms of TV and movies, me and my oldest best friend were absolutely massive 
Monty Python fan, um, you know, you initially have your introduction through Parrot Sketch and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and then spreading out into the films like The Life of Brian and Holy Grail and things like this. Oh, yeah, brilliant. And then we'd watch things like they, they, their third series is incredibly strange and it has these long deeply weird um terry gilliam animation yeah. and i love that and i think we're very influenced by that monty python thing of finding laughter in quite terrible things mm. you know like the constitutional peasant with you know come see the oh, violence yeah. sorry <laughs> come see the violence there in the system <laughs> yeah um, and uh, you know the life of Brian and all that, and I also really loved comics as well. I had I had um, well pretty much two specific comics, which was because again with my dad, he had this fantastic news agent with all these brilliant comics. And there's a particular comic by Sergio Aragonés called Gru, which is my little Skype avatar. You can see there. Oh yeah, who's this um, <laughs> mindless idiot um, who is also completely vulnerable because he's such a great warrior, but he's a, he's an utter fool. <laughs> and um very funny comics and then i also really love 2000 ad um and oh, yeah, I, used to, yeah. I was had a subscription to 2000 ad and i loved the, um some of that stuff and they did really interesting stories ranging from uh they did a they did a story called hark and burr which was about grave robbers in the cursed earth like in this post-nuclear united states yeah. and they did a story called um uh, Devlin War, which is a which is a vampire story set in an underwater prison, and these stories that just <laughs> stick in your head and um, wow. and don't go away. It's interesting hearing you guys talk about this. I think there are echoes in your respective books of some of the themes that 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 you mentioned there, like John, with you with the humour, and and Antonio, you with this kind of striving to be free, striving to yeah. to be yeah. uh, you know to escape the system, and I, I think you see that all over the ship. I want to move on and ask you some other things. So these questions could provoke long answers, but we'll, we'll see. So again, to each of you, why why do you write, and what what is your primary objective in creating and, and sharing stories? Most most people who write, in my experience, have always felt a natural urge to do it that that they can't particularly pin down to yeah. any motive other than the urge to do it when you really find an author that gets inside your head that really transports you somewhere yeah. i think you see a real power in that and you your ambition is to be able to do that with me i i tried all sorts of things because i wrote a book when i was about 12 12 or 13 i wrote about half a book it was very very weird it was it was a it was a destroyed world and there was no one left on the world apart from pizza delivery boy and an, an animated lemon that had been given life and then i wrote like plays and poems and you know all sorts of stuff trying to find what was my thing you know because i also tremendously admired um playwrights and things and did lots of plays at school and all yeah. that sort of thing mm-hmm. what do you think antonia well, i i wrote my first book very young as well i was i was eight and it was a playground it was raining in the playground and we we used to have what was called wet play which meant we had to sit and be really, really quiet in our classroom. And um, our teacher gave us each a blank notebook, just a blank notebook. And uh, and I wrote this story in it about this. Um, it was all set on a snakes and ladders board. And it was the story of a game of snakes and ladders from the point of view of a counter. And, oh, interesting. And so, yeah. You know, the, the counter's kind of watching the throw of the dice and the throw of the dice is going to determine whether it's going to succeed or fail in getting to the end of the board. It was all very, very angsty um, for, for an eight-year-old. Um, But I think even then what I was trying to do was communicate something that even I wasn't quite sure what it was I was trying to say. 
um, in a form that maybe would resonate with with other people. Um, mm. Not that I would let anyone read it at that point. And so I think I think I write because there are things I want to say that I can't say in any, any other form. I want to draw people in. You know, obviously the, the main reason I write is because I like I like to entertain people. I like to think mm. that a few hours of someone else's life has gone more quickly or more interestingly because of something I did in the same way that I am, I love reading because it's an experience that, you know, you, you spend two or three hours in a book, as you were saying, John, in another world, another way of thinking, and it enriches absolutely mm. everything else you yes. do. And so there, there is a, there is a desire to do that for other people. I mean, it's, just, it's a ridiculous thing to want to do, isn't it? Cause there are so many other things and it's, it's, it's hard and the, the world, the publishing world is so unpredictable and so quixotic. It, it's not particularly safe or secure. No. It, so you must be driven by something more, I think, than just the need to do it because there are other things that you need to do. I think I'd probably be locked up if I said a lot of the things I want to say in another form. But bring someone into a story and... If you stood on a street corner... If you stood on a street corner, if you stood on a street corner yelling about they're all they're going to put us all on a ship, and (laughs) I suspect Antonio, you probably do have some earnest conversations with with all kinds of people, including your good friends, and and I think you probably do just say what you think from time to time, which is great. Well, I'm I'm if I if I give that impression, I'm gonna I'm gonna call that a win. I actually spend most of my time up to my elbows in cooking, washing, yeah, cleaning, yeah. and the seven times table at the moment. Yes. Um, so if, if you made, maybe I just, maybe it was, maybe at Galance Fest, it was just the chance to actually try and say yeah. these things. And I need to get out a little bit more, perhaps. <laughs> it, it, it could have been. You did, you did give us some great advice on just jolly well writing, didn't you? As I recall. And, and I think jolly well were exactly the words I used. I think they might have been allegedly. <laughs> So moving on, moving on. So a big issue I find with people who are as yet unpublished, beginning to write and thinking about themselves as writers. Um, how important is it for us to think of ourselves as writers, as authors in the early part of our career? Well, perhaps at any point in our career, but especially when we're just starting out, maybe when we haven't had anything published yet. I think it depends on the person because first of all, you have to make the decision that you want to write books. A lot of people I know, you know, they're like, oh, well, I do a bit of a screenplay here and a bit of a story there and a bit of this and a bit of that. And I think mm-hmm. you have to decide, no, I'm a writer of books. Okay. And when I, when I started out, I have to say, um, my girlfriend at the time and now wife used to, you know, used to get annoyed with me for when people asked me what I did, I'd, I'd say, oh, I'm a, like a PR guy for a charity and uh, and so you know you should tell people you're right but I, I I did and that was for a couple of reasons first of all I saw a film once with um, Jeremy Irons playing Franz Kafka and it had a very nice opening scene where he was toiling in an very obviously Kafkaesque office space <laughs> and his opening line was um, in my it's something like in my day job I'm a clerk at a middling bank but I'm also secretly a writer and something about that appealed to me that it was my secret um, your superhero um, identity (laughs) yeah bit of that yeah my secret calling Uh, but you know the other thing is is that i think for me i thought it was helpful to go do you know what i'm going to be a writer you know when i have reached a certain target and for me that was simply to have actually finished a book a book that i was happy with it didn't have to be published but to have finished a book and at that stage I was like, at that point, I can say I'm a writer. Okay. While I'm still messing about, struggling, I'm not. Okay. What about you, Antonia? What do you think on this? What, 
you know, I, I still struggle to call myself a writer now. I, I think I, it's a really hard one to, to pin down. I think it's partly because whatever you achieve and however you achieve it, there's always more. Yes, there's always a, yeah. another, there's always another mountain to climb. Now, I'm not in the position, like where, for example, where I have another contract or I'm writing another book that I know will be published. I'm still back exactly where I was before I got commercially published, you know, writing on spec, hoping that somebody's going to pick up what I've written. Mm. And it's, it's a very hard position to be in post-publication, you know, because I think for an unpublished writer, certainly when I was not, when I was unpublished, you think that publication is the holy grail. I was always going to call myself a writer if I ever achieved publication. And I gave that goal everything I had. Yeah. Once I decided that was really what I was going to do. And it took a long time and you know, blah, 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 blah. All of that, all of those struggles. You know, we can we can talk about those till the cows come home. But they're very real. And I think I'd very much bought into the if I could just get published, the road after publication was going to be as smooth as silk. <laughs> and that could not be farther from the truth. And that the other thing is that every writer's journey is completely different. Yeah. And that that um, that saying about comparison being the thief of joy couldn't be more true. Mm. I think than in a than in a, a an aspiring writer's career. So I I hesitate. I, I'd love to say that anybody who writes is a writer. Anybody who who has the ambition to write is a writer. But I really really like John's definition. You know, if you've written a whole book, regardless of what happens to it. Um, it's also, I think, about where you choose to spend the energy you have to work so hard to gain. Mm. You know, there is always something more important. There is always something more urgent. And like when I was teaching, and I'm, I'm a teacher by training, and, um, you know, I may, may yet go back to it. I, I loved teaching. But, you know, you've got to be in front of that classroom, in front of that class, and that's the timetable, and that's what you've got to teach them, and this is how you're planning to do it. It's a very measurable thing. You are a teacher because you go into the classroom, you teach, you mark, you nurture those young people and you hopefully set them off into a into a great future, having reached their potential under your care. But a writer doesn't have that unless you are having a continual, re continually renewed contract and you know that your editor is going to publish the next thing you write. Mm. Are you a writer? I don't know. Um, and so for me, it comes down to, do you make the time to do it? And do you do it no matter what? What do you choose to do when mm. you carve out that time from the rest of your life? So what about know. you, John? What's, what's, what is, what's stopping you from writing or what's competing with your writing time? You're, you're, you're the dad of one child. Um, yeah. presumably there are other I was going to say, uh, and Antonio will clearly disagree with me here, but one, <laughs> one child for me, counts as a job in its own right that's a full I'm not time disagreeing job. with you john so <laughs> I, to me having had having had my baby girl i am the the the, re, the only reason i can keep going now is weirdly because of my day job because i have a day job i mean i'm sure i'd work it out otherwise but because of my day job i commute now we've, we've moved out of london and i now commute and the commute is perfect um i'm on a train full of um quite quiet, fairly miserable people on their way into <laughs> town in the morning. And I always get a seat and I have a little table. I bought myself a nice new laptop so that I can, um, so that it fits on my lap and it's not too mm -hmm. heavy. It's nice and light. 
And every single day, no matter what, I get a certain amount of time done. Yeah, and, and that is a, magic. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's made great. a massive difference. I have no earthly idea how Antonio does it with four kids, but but most people do. You know, find if as you say, if they want to do it, they find a way. And I think that's yeah. why you're able to say, "I am a I am a writer." Mm. Is when you, is, as as Antonio says, when you are making the time to do it every time, it is another job. You are doing it all the time. It's hard work. And you are, you, I think you are justified in saying that you are a writer. I'm in exactly the same position. I'm, I'm, I'm out of contract. I've done a trilogy of books mm. and I've now written, I've done the stupid thing of basically writing two at the same time. And they're both pretty much kind of on their way to finished. Um, well and, uh, you know, and then, and, and it does feel, you do feel like you're, you're resetting to exactly where you were before. I had a wonderful, wonderful three-month period after I got my initial contract where I took three months off work and I was just tap dancing around the place saying, I'm a writer and, and that's the <laughs> end of it. And then, and then I realized yes. that the money was burning away at an alarming <laughs> speed and had to go back into, into work. But it was a great oh, three bloody months. Bloody money. Isn't it, isn't it just the end? <laughs> it is, God, yeah. If it wasn't for the money, we could all be writers. That's Absolutely. right. If it wasn't... Maybe I'll use that as the title of this podcast. If it wasn't for the money, we could all be writers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and kind of, kind of following on from what you guys were just saying there, we, you now, obviously, you two have both kind of got over the got over the hurdles and are now commercially published writers. So, uh, what was or what were your respective routes to publication? Um, John, should we start with you on that one? Sure. I just, my, but my, um, thing is, is very traditional. So I, um, you know, once I had the book in a, in a state that I was happy with, I got the, you know, the physical writers and artists yearbook. I looked up agents who are interested in science fiction and fantasy. I sent out printed copies with printed synopses to all of these agents. Then I started to get rejection, 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 rejection coming back in. Yep. I got one rejection from this guy who I think, I don't, I'm not sure if it was you I was talking to, but someone, no, someone else at Glancefest had also encountered this bloke who sent me back a, um, he sent me back a copy of my manuscript with no thanks written on it in biro, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which was utterly brutal. But, but, but evidently he has a reputation for this. So I discovered afterwards. But the only reason I, I got the motivation to do it was I was about to get married. And that felt like a sort of a watershed moment. And I thought, come on, you know, stop messing about. Get it out there. Like, you know, don't be cowardly. Get it mm. out there. Mm. So I sent it out, and then after getting about five or six rejections, I went off on, got married, and went off on a honeymoon. And then I came back, and there was an email waiting in my inbox from an agent saying, "Have I missed a boat on this?" And and I and mm-hmm. I thought, God, I know there was a boat. This is this is fabulous. <laughs> this is take take me on board. And yeah. I went, I, and it was it was great. It was it was a it was a it was a really pleasing experience. I, I'm I, I'm very. I'm in the great position because I don't know. It's not always the case. I'm very fond of my agent, and nice. we had a very good we had a very good meeting initially. But it was it was very striking how his he was very concerned to say, "Are you happy receiving criticism on your work?" Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, and I said, well, 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 yeah, yeah, do, you know, hand it over. He said, okay, so you you won't get upset if I suggest changes. And I realised that a lot of people he encounters clearly say 
no, this is perfect. Um, don't don't t- you insult me by suggesting changes mm-hmm. to it. One other one follow-on question to you, John, from that. Had so you, so you've written a trilogy. Had you written all three books of that when you pitched to the agent, or had you written the first, or where were you at? I had written the first, right. and I had had a vague thought about um, where it would go because. At the end of the uh, of the first book, I certainly didn't think that it would stay like that if there was interest in it. But on the other hand, it was an ending to a book, and I was happy with that book, and yeah. that's where I was. When we actually arranged a meeting with the publisher, the meeting with the publisher was just, I mean, I don't know what, what it was like for you, Antonio, but I was really on a high. I got I went to a restaurant, had a nice meal. <laughs> And and he and he was talking about my characters, you know, and saying what he enjoyed about the book. And it was it was really, really something because I, I was so far from thinking my my state of mind was so locked in, you know, that's not going to happen. Like I, I had I had cemented in my head that it wasn't going to happen. And and to have someone say that say that to me was really something. And and he said, Do you have another two books in you? And I said, Well, hell yeah, you know, whatever you want. I'm I'm available, you know. <laughs> What about you, Antonia? Yeah, you're a writer. You're a real writer now, by any definition. What was what was your route then, Antonia? Well, I mean, similar. Started with the Writers and Artists Yearbook. It's such a great resource. It was it was it was a slog actually. It was really really slow. I realised that if I wanted to be a writer, I needed to write a novel. So I I did write a novel, and I'd absorbed so much about how hard this is. And how difficult, and you know how it's practically impossible to get commercially published, and you know blah 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 blah, which is actually true, but it can't be completely true, or John and I wouldn't be sitting here now, would mm. we? And and what I'd absorbed is all the it's impossible, and uh, you know you need to have a really thick skin, and you you have to take loads of rejection, and like it, it, that what you just said there, John, really resonated with me because that's what I'd internalised, and I'd written this novel, which in hindsight. Would, would have been a good first novel. And I submitted it to six agents and they all rejected it. So I decided to be very, very grown up and understand that this was just a very difficult industry and walked away from it and started writing another one. And I think what, what, what I hadn't appreciated was the sheer degree of bloody mindedness you need. I'd absorbed so much of this it's impossible attitude and I didn't know anyone who was published. I didn't have any friends who were writers. I didn't mm. know anyone who worked in the publishing industry. Mm. All I did was read voraciously, which is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't exactly help you understand the process behind how things get published and how hard it all is. Mm. And so there, there was nobody who could say to me, actually, Antonia, six rejections is not very many. You need to get your next six agents and try them. Yeah. And the other thing I haven't appreciated, which any aspiring writers listening to, please take on board, that an agent who rejects your work with a critique is actually very interested in your work. They're not trying to make you feel better about being rejected. They're not just being kind. They would just scribble no thanks on in Byron on your <laughs> manuscript, um, which I'm not saying is the right thing to do, but they do do it. If you've had a rejection which says, love this about it, maybe work on this, do this, think about this, that is something to be celebrated. Mm. I didn't know that. I thought these people were just being kind. And so I feel like I through lack of advice and lack of anyone to turn to, I feel like I, I slowed up my own journey by mm. not understanding that had I acted on that and rewritten the manuscript and kept going, this all might have happened a little bit earlier for me with a different novel. 
but there you go and so that's just a little a little piece of advice for people out there um take take the take the criticism nobody offers it they're too busy they're too busy to critique work they're not interested in but what happened then was um i got an agent with my second novel who struggled to sell it um i wrote her another novel which she couldn't sell either and then she gave up agenting altogether and is now running a bed and breakfast somewhere Um, (laughs) which you know is a that's a story in itself and then i wrote when I started working on the ship, I knew I was writing something slightly different from anything I'd written before. And I knew that I was trying to say something very important through this novel. And it took me a while. But when I got it, and I was happy with it, I submitted it to one of the agents who had rejected my previous novels. And because he had offered constructive criticism beforehand, I think when this one landed on his desk, he, he could see that I'd carried on. You know, I hadn't given <clears throat> yeah, up. I'd, yeah. I'd kept going. I'd kept going. Yeah. I'd kept going. And so the fairy tale that you hear about my publication deal is that the three chapters, sample chapters landed on his desk on the Friday. He'd read them by the Monday. By the Tuesday, he'd taken me on. And that Friday, he sold the novel. <laughs> you know, it, it, that, that's the fairy story. Yeah. But what it, what it doesn't get across is the, the decades and the, yeah. the four previous novels that had paved the way to that particular fairy tale, which, you know, hasn't lasted. My, my writing life is no longer a fairy tale. But I had that very brief style, as John was saying, you know, the somebody getting your work, somebody reflecting yeah. back at you exactly what you were trying to yeah. say yeah. and having That's that great. moment where you think, yes, I did it. I got across what I yeah. was trying to say. And now it's going to go and have its chance in this in this wide, cruel world. Um <laughs> So yes, but, Antonio, what, what have you done with the other four novels? Have you tried to go back to them? Would you do something with them again? That that is a really really interesting question, and the answer is that I actually don't know. I, I kind of feel that a novel belongs to the time in which you wrote it. Mm. Yeah, and mm. I'm not the same person in many ways as mm. I was when I wrote them, mm. and I kind of believe in moving forwards rather than moving backwards. Sure, okay, and I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I, I think. I mean, obviously, obviously, if I got an offer for one of them, I wouldn't say no. But I, I do think that maybe one is better off looking forward. Antonio, I want to ask you a couple of quick follow-up questions from what yeah, you were saying there. So you said you got uh, some rejections, which he, or at least one rejection, which had some critique in it, and you talked about the mm. value of that. What did you do with that critique? Did you did you re- rework the book at all before you then sent it out again based on what you were told or what? How did you deal with that critique? Well, after I'd wept copiously <laughs> because it was a rejection. No, at that stage, the rejection was really all I could see. I had poured my heart and soul into it. Yeah, and I was yeah. teaching. It's all very It's very difficult finding time to write with four children. But it's also very difficult to find time to write when you're teaching full time in inner London oh, gosh, with a yeah. department of 29 staff and 3,000 kids, 63% of whom speak English as a second language. You know, that's that's a hard environment to write a novel in as well. And and that's the circumstances in which I wrote my first novel. Okay. And and I think I did just genuinely take it as a this isn't good enough. Okay. Um You and didn't you didn't teacher, try and do anything particularly with it then in terms of I'm gonna go back and revise at all. It was just I, it was just I didn't really hindsight. understand what it was to okay. revise at right. that stage. Okay. Um you know, people are quite disparaging about writing courses, for example. Um but I, I think a good writing course can teach you things like the importance of rewriting mm. and what that actually means 
Mm. And the fact that the, you know, the publishing industry is just too busy to give feedback on stuff they don't yeah. like. So yeah. any constructive feedback is actually an expression of interest. Yes. Yeah. You, you, you're not, you're not born with that knowledge. And I think this is where connections, although I don't want to believe that, you know, the whole thing about having knowing people in the industry, which is another contentious subject. Mm. But I think if you do know someone in the industry, that's one of the first things they're going to be able to tell you. Yeah. How do you know these things if nobody tells yeah. you? Yeah. I think yeah. The other question I wanted to just pick up on, when when you went back to the agent who did take you on, yeah. did you remind him that you had sent him a book which he'd commented on X months before at all? Or did he know any? Did he just pick up that? that did he recognise your name? No, I, I did. I did remind him okay. In, okay. in my email. <clears throat> um, but that, that was quite easy to do because you... You, it, it was why I was resubmitting this yeah. to him. That would, and that would it, feel natural, it was wouldn't a, it, I suppose? It, yeah. it wasn't a resubmission. It was a new novel from the yes. one he'd, he'd rejected yeah. before. Um, but you, you, it's, it's helpful. When you are approaching agents, um, it's really helpful to be able to say, this is where I met you. This is our connection. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not vain or arrogant enough to believe that everybody's going to remember it's me. Um, <laughs> if you are trying to get published, if you are listening to this and you're in a position where you're trying to find an agent... You know, go to any events that they're speaking at. If one of their authors is having a an open launch party, try and get to that launch party yeah. and just say hello. Yeah. And then you can say, I met you on this occasion. You know, I met you at Galancefest and we talked about this. Yeah. And I really enjoyed meeting you and this is why I'm letting I would like you to look at this work I've I've done. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's that's just polite, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, and um, quite natural, I think. So yeah. I, I want to I want to move on and talk about your respective books, the two of you. So, uh, John, in your case, it's your book Barricade, and Antonia, your book The Ship. Perhaps we could start with you, John. I wonder if you each of you could give us just a kind of almost like an elevator pitch or a brief kind of outline, without giving too many spoilers away, of what your book is about. Sure. So Barricade is set in a near future dystopian Britain. It's very much a British book. And in this Britain, there it takes place in the aftermath of a conflict between humans and superhumans, sort of a sort of creepy race of eugenic, tin pot, Nietzschean experimentation, super people. And the, <laughs> these super people live now in this aftermath, live in the rotting uh, barricaded remnants of cities while the countryside is roamed by the remnants of humanity and wow. the story takes place it's a sort of very actiony tale of a um, taxi journey undertaken by one of these super people from mm. edinburgh to london and he is the narrator of this tale and he's an arrogant son of a bitch telling the story of this journey taking a journalist from edinburgh to london across this ruined future britain mm. calling it a taxi ride is almost an understatement really isn't it? <laughs> yeah. anybody actually reads it what about you yeah, then antonio it, it, tell it the sort of high concept pitch is sort of mad max meets blade runner yeah yeah that's there's, that's a, there's a bit of that pitch. <laughs> <laughs> what about you then antonio tell us tell us about the ship my, mine mine was you had two of those pictures one one was the hunger games meets noah's ark and the yes. other what was the other the, um the handmaid's tale meets children of men was, was the other <laughs> one that, that um somebody came up with but yes no i i'm in my i'm in a very very near not really even a future just a very slightly alternative present where everything that i worry about in the world now or that Anyone, any reasonable person worries climate change, um, increasing social inequality, and um, the fate of people who don't have access to technology. 
and they've all come to their natural conclusion and society has largely broken down um and and within that there's there's one man who has made a huge amount of money out of the collapse as people some people always will and what he decides he wants to do with it is keep his daughter his only daughter safe in this collapsing world mm-hmm. and he decides he can't do this whilst still living in London it's set the opening set in London mm. and what he does is he buys a massive luxury cruise ship and stocks it to the gills not just with food but with with books and the digital contents of every museum and art gallery in the world and and art materials and and craft things so that people can still express themselves and and musical instruments you know and he he hand picks 500 people to have sanctuary on the ship on the condition that they form a society in which his daughter can grow up. And he takes them all on the ship and off they all sail. But what he hasn't reckoned for is the fact that his daughter is a person with thoughts and feelings of her own. And she has not suffered through the collapse in the way that the other 499 have, because he's, he's always protected her. She's lived a very, very sheltered existence. And what that sheltered existence allows her to do is ask questions about where they've come from and where they're going and what the consequences of this decision are mm. in a way that nobody else on the ship can. They're all, they're all disenfranchised by gratitude and disenfranchised by the suffering they've experienced beforehand. And so she becomes this kind of stone in the shoe of this beautiful life that's been laid out for, for the people of the ship. And, um, and so the novel is actually about, about her, about, she's called Lala, mm. um, is, is about Lala's inability to just embrace this world that's been created for her and, and, uh, and what, and what she ultimately suffers on the ship and what mm. she ultimately does about that and form, forms the story. Um, and yeah. That- my novel okay and now um each of you have made judgments in in your work about how to keep your setting interesting and credible so in, in the sense that the reader will engage with it. they don't think it's incredible and they so they can engage although you're both creating alternative worlds to the one that, that, that we currently live in so what sort of judgments have you made to keep your settings credible but still immersive for readers again john should we start with you if i was going to do a dystopian future britain i wanted to use places that were awe-inspiring to me in very different ways. So Edinburgh is a stunningly um, beautiful city and it's and the way it's built on all these levels and surrounded by hills makes for a great location. It, it, it makes for a great city to be battered to pieces and to be um, a ruin. It would make a great ruin. Thought. Yeah, I agree. Equally, there's a, a large scene at a, a motorway service station. And motorway service stations are one of these weird, modern, transient locations that we all use all the time. And, and every now and then, you know, when you're on a very large car journey and you come out at one of these, because I do a lot of driving up to the Lake District, and I go to a lot of very, very far north service stations. And often it would be very early in the morning. And I remember one time I was going up there for Christmas and watching and in an empty service station and watching a incredibly depressed looking teenager wearing a Santa hat, pushing a Hoover around. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought these places have such a strange quality to mm. them. Um, yeah. And equally Brixton, which is the part of London is a part of London. I know well and love very much. And I knew that I wanted to, 
do something about the way that Brixton is changing. And, and I thought this sort of breed of sort of arrogant superhumans sort of taking over, taking it over and making it theirs. Um, was good. And it was also because one of my, one of my friends told me this stupid thing about how when the Thames floods, Brixton will be poking out of the floodwaters, which I think was complete nonsense, but it did get me. <laughs> a great image though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about you, Antonia? How did you keep the ship both credible and immersive? So firstly, I had to create a world which required escape from, escape from. It, it, there had yes. to be a fairly hopeless sense. Well, that was actually quite easy because all you've got to do is read the paper, you know, and I, I, had, I had quite a lot of more fun than perhaps I should have done thinking, right, okay, if our power fails, um, if we can no longer, you know, if we don't come up with sustainable fuels and, and the oil becomes totally unreliable and we're still relying on it, you know, the Thames barrier is going to break and then Big Ben's going to be sticking out of the Thames and the Thames is going to become like a, a, an inlet of the sea rather than a, a very controlled waterway. And uh, you know, it was about, to start with, it was about creating those images, you know, just mm. take, taking things to their logical conclusion. If we keep using massive quantities of industrial fertilizer, we are going to deplete the fertility of the soil. Then we're not going to be able to grow stuff anymore. I mean, that is going to happen. Um, it's a, it's not a, it's not pushing the boundaries in a, in a more conventionally science fiction kind of way. It's just taking what we're doing now to a mm. logical conclusion. Mm. If we don't change. Mm. Like so they're all, there's all perfectly reasonable or, or, you know, believable scenarios, aren't they? I guess yeah, that you're exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and okay. so that, that, that hopefully brings people on board because you're not stretching credulity. Mm, and yeah. on the ship itself, it was all just about what do we all want? And I think the one thing that we all want is time. You know, time seems to be, and maybe this is just says more about me than about people in general. I don't know. But it feels like time is, is the one asset we just don't have enough of. And I don't think that the way that our modern lives work particularly, you know, with our iPhones where we can always be contacted and yeah, we can be yeah. emailing. And my, my commutes used to be, when I was commuting into London, used to be a time when I would read. Well, now, when I have to go into London, I'm doing all the emails, I'm catching up on this, I'm even catching up on my supermarket shopping. Um, so, <laughs> so the ship became about time, time to create, time to reflect, time to make connections with people you've got something in common with. Yes. And I... I hope that what I managed to do with the ship is create an environment that people would want to be a part of so that they can go along with the decisions that Michael, the, yeah. the father, is making. Yeah. And I think sometimes I feel I succeeded a bit too well in that because there are a lot of readers who have reacted very, very negatively to Lala as an ungrateful little cow, you know, with this really? wonderful world set out in front of her and, you know, how dare she be so ungrateful when she's got everything that anybody could ever want. Um, which actually took me a bit by surprise. I'm I'm surprised. Um, I'm I'm, but, I'm two thirds of the way through it at the moment, and I completely my friend. And I completely understand. <laughs> I completely understand where she's coming from. I'm glad. I I do yeah. too. I I do too. But it's yeah. Go go um go go behind below the line on some of the Amazon reviews. <laughs> 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 it's it's a bad experience. Don't do it. Um. But yes, there, there, there's yeah. been a lot of you know she is very ungrateful. And I do sometimes wonder whether that's because she is a girl and, and whether a, a Lionel rather than a Lala might have been a bit more praised as a, somebody going for freedom mm. and escape. 
Whereas, you know, we, we still like our girls to be grateful, don't we, for all the things we do for them. <laughs> I don't know. I thought one of the things that was really successful about it was that it's very clear where her unease springs from. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd agree with uh, that. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's good. And I think, um, you know, it doesn't shy away from her talking about sex and romance and um, and all that sort of stuff. And I, 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 yeah. I, I thought it was very clear where she was coming yeah. from, really. So I'm, well, I'm really, really glad. Thank you for that. Uh, I, as as well, just to kind of continue the warm glow, hopefully for you, Antonio. I think one of the <laughs> one of the the sort of in really interesting things about this book is that the dad isn't universally the bad guy. The ship isn't no. universally a bad place. That there's no. actually. You know, it's it's more nuanced and complex than that. And there is a lot. That that ship could be 99% perfect. And still the 1% that's wrong with it, the critical 1% that's wrong with that mm. whole society is the very reason why it just doesn't work for her. For, for your yeah. for your central character and obviously people need to, to read the book to see see where that's going so i but i can understand i think i can understand why some people might see her in the light that you've described perhaps they haven't yeah. appreciated just how important that one percent of wrongness is in that in that yes. environment that you've created there with the with the people on that ship you've had to create an environment where everyone apart from one person conforms in some fundamental way um yeah. so how did but, but they're all quite different characters so how did yeah. you go about creating a realistic credible group of characters but all of whom were going to buy into this environment that they were presented with well i think um i think that was that was to do with the the fact that what i what i wanted them all to have in common was simply that their actions have been motivated by a faith in human nature and what everybody on the ship has in common is that at some point in their lives they have demonstrated a faith in human nature but just because they've got this one thing in common it, it, their backgrounds are all are all very very different mm. and i suppose if i'm if i'm getting analytical about it i, I wanted to show that that faith in human nature is not not confined to one particular group or one to one particular set of experiences so you know you've got a character on on the ship who was burned out of africa which mm. has succumbed to global warming you've got another character that um fed other people's when she was um when she had her baby she fed other people's babies as well because there wasn't enough food for the babies to yeah. to go around yeah. Yeah. um and they, they've all done noble and unselfish things kind mm. of for the for the good of, and that's where um, Michael that has picked them up and given them births on the mm. ship. Um, yeah. So, yes, no, their I, backgrounds I, are different, but no, they're, they're a, united. That, I think, is a strength. That is, as I said, I think a real strength of the book is that it isn't, um, look, here's a bad person or here are bad people. It, it's a real exploration of some of the nuances of how people are, I suppose. Mm. Um, so yeah. I want to, I, John, I want to come to you now to ask a very particular question about the barricade because one of the things that really struck me with your book was how you've got characters in it who they're not quite human and they're not quite machine they're not quite they're neither they're they're kind of neither one thing nor the other and i think you've had to make some interesting decisions about how you create their personalities and how you create the moral viewpoint that they have Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about how you how you did that how you for for someone who's not quite human how you create a, a credible moral viewpoint for them? Sure. Uh, the, the group of, as I was saying, there's this, there's this group of a small group of superhumans, men plus and women plus, who have basically had their brains fiddled with, <laughs> and have had particular <laughs> emotions ripped, burned is the expression used in the trilogy, burned mm. out of them. 
and they are very single-minded of purpose around particular jobs that need doing. They are created for a good purpose. They are created to help stem the tide of this imminent well, of this unfolding catastrophe that's taking place around the world. And they are the great white hope of, you know, there's the, the, the fa- fabulous um, expression in uh, Children of Men of, you know, a plucky Britain soldiers on, you know, they are, yes. they are, the, <laughs> they are the British, they're an invention of a British creator to deal with these problems. So uh, Kenstabet, the main character, is, is specifically built for engineering. And originally, you know, when I started write, to write the book, I wanted him to be a, co- a cold and ruthless, have a cold and ruthless attitude to humanity. And that was sort mm-hmm. of the rough mm-hmm. idea. It was almost an experiment to see, like, can I write this guy and make it compelling and interesting and make you want to read a lot but as as it sort of progressed you know that becomes informed by and i think that makes it sympathetic is there are things about um his entire perception of the world is actually shaped by humanity and he and his he is a damaged individual in many respects Mm. but he still can find things to admire in people he he finds the fact that they endure uh, these horrific conditions they endure through it all and he admires the you know what remains of the civilization they've built but at the same time he's utterly cutting about what they have done with their inheritance and their stewardship of the world Mm. Mm. and i think that anyone with a sense of history and a sense of, as Antonio says, who so anyone who reads the papers has a feeling of a, a, an odd mix of um, sort of despair for the dominance of the worst past of our nature, mm-hmm. and at the same time a sense of powerlessness before a sort of imminent catastrophe. Which you know, and there's a and we have this sense. I think a lot of the literature that's being put out at the moment has this sense of you know, it's not good enough to say, oh, we'll soldier on, we'll soldier through, it'll all be okay. You know, we only yeah. have this one world, and and these things are yeah. too huge for us to be blasé about. Mm. And I think the the thing that makes Kensterbeck an interest an interesting character, hopefully, and the reason why you know you might enjoy reading the book is that you will find yourself agreeing with at least one of the thing, one of the cutting remarks he has to say about humanity. And at the same time, you'll find that he, um, it, you'll find it amusing occasionally how he, how he can't relate to some of the, some of the basic ways that people mm. form relationships. Mm. So some of the best things about us, he can't relate to. It's interesting how he, like when I was reading your book, I felt like every now and again, I was jolted out of thinking of him as human. I was reminded that actually he's he's looking in on the on the human condition and he's looking in on the people around him and drawing his own conclusions from them. So it really struck me as well how sympathetic one can be to a, some potentially quite unlikable characters. That they they, they yeah. actually they were they were quite. I felt drawn to all of them, really. Well, the, your three well, main characters. Great. You know, I mean, the thing, the thing about Fatty in particular, the reason mm. why he's there and the reason why he's referred to in this scornful way purely by his physicality and the reason why Starvey is there and she's referred to purely in terms of her physicality and, you know, and used for her physicality in the book is I, I, I've always had a frustration with particularly TV and film of the gorgeousness um, that we project on screen in all forms and there's no room for and it's not even vaguely realistic it's this other world 
and I th- and a lot of what the officials are are these you know these other people and I wanted to have a hideous hideous physically a physically hideous hero in a book mm-hmm. someone who was just horrendous to look at and um you know suffering from a horrendous affliction I wanted that to be a hero well he is pretty hideous right. isn't he? Yes, <laughs> So yeah. um, I've got a, a couple of final questions for you both. First of all, uh, do you have any final advice for writers, each of you, st- anything that we haven't covered, any sort of brief kind of words of wisdom that you'd want to share on the on the craft? The only thing, and I could talk about other aspects for a very, very long time, but I think all you can, the only part of the whole process that is in your control is whether you keep going. Mm, yeah, and yeah. there, there is no magic bullet. There's no writing routine that will. There's no particular notebook or pen you can buy, or way you can work, or new snazzy laptop or computer program you can download, or group you can join, or course you can do. There is nothing that is a magic bullet, a silver bullet in this situation. All you can do is persevere. Perseverance mm. is the only magic bullet there is. You just have to write. <laughs> and let what happens happen that that's that's what that's it comes it. down to for me just right just jolly well right yes jolly well <laughs> jolly well <laughs> john any 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 final thoughts i think one of the big things that i've that i've had to learn was the flush the initial flush of enthusiasm giving way to the sort of awful thought of having to actually finish this thing and make (laughs) it make sense and put it together and connect it and to not be satisfied with the first cobbled together piece of work and to to learn to love rewriting is was, was a big part of writing every day for me the more i've written i think the better i've got i think that's the same for everyone yes but yeah. i think that a big big part of that is learning to take time over a single page and yeah. really go over these things again and again and really make it all that it can be mm. and to learn to mm. love that process and not to feel frustrated and just want it to be done was a big thing for me yeah. it really interesting yeah yeah no you're absolutely right and that feeling that when you've written something and you think i can oh i can get away with that that's yeah i can get away with that you that's when you can't that's when you've really got mm. to go back and find out what the problem is and dig it up yeah. and rewrite <laughs> as you say rewrite 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 it's so important mm. and it's it's work isn't it that's when when the when the cloud of inspiration disperses and you're left with the with the actual work yes. of putting it together it yeah. is work yeah. and you need to look at it that way yeah yeah it is yeah so a a final question to each of you uh if anybody wants to uh, follow up and look at your work and find out more about your you guys uh where do they go and how do they do that yeah so my uh, my stupid url for my website is johnwallace.co um there's no dot (laughs) there's no dot uk after that okay um so i didn't know you could have i'm so clueless at I'm so, I, 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 my my approach to social and websites and everything has been a, a, a process of reducing my cluelessness as opposed to get, getting better. But, <laughs> I don't think you're uh, being fair to yourself at all. Uh, yes. But um, if you Google John Wallace author, that will pop up up the top. Okay. Um, that's my website, and you can go to Amazon. And Barricade is the first of a trilogy. There's Barricade, Steeple, and Rig, and there's a quite commonly good deals on them on 
uh, Amazon and other and available in all good bookshops. Excellent. Uh, what about you, Antonia? Um, my my website is antoniahoneywell.com and Twitter at Antonia underscore writes because that's what I do. Because that's what you do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Antonia Honeywell. Antonia underscore cooks, cleans, runs around after people and provides a taxi service. It was just too long. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Antonia and Antonia underscore writes. And uh, yes, Amazon and all good bookshops. And Excellent. The ship. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, John and Antonia, for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining me on the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's been great. It's lovely to chat to you, John. It's a pleasure. It's always good to speak to you, Antonia. And thanks so much for having us, Andy. It's great. You're very welcome. Okay. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye to, to Bye. you both. Bye-bye. Bye both.